the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi accusing Republicans of rushing to pass a massive tax overhaul behind closed doors. Big tax break for corporate America at the expense of our veterans, our children, America's working families. This is really a disgrace. If they have a bipartisan bill, it will be far more popular than the monstrosity they put together behind closed doors, which I think, again, they will pay a price for big price for in 2018. Indeed, Chuck Schirmer's there saying Republicans will be held accountable in next year's midterm elections. In a Capitol briefing today, Pelosi called the process, quote, dishonest and said working families will be ripped off while the nation's wealthiest people and corporations will be rewarded. Now, the 479-page bill that uh, showing, at least before the final version, had many handwritten notes in the margins, was provided to senators at 5 p.m. Friday, less than nine hours before voting on it. Now, just to put this in perspective, with this big rush to perhaps present us either with an early Christmas gift or maybe a lunk of coal in American stockings, the last time Congress passed a comprehensive tax reform bill was clear back in 1986. That was during the Reagan administration. And at that time, more than 450 witnesses testified before the House Ways and Means Committee and the Senate Finance Committee held 33 days of hearings. So what's the big rush? And are there as many surprises in this as some are suggesting? Well, to provide some insights, we're joined now by Adam Michelle. Adam is policy analyst for the Heritage Foundation's Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. His specialty, in fact, is in the arena of tax policy and the federal budget. And Adam, great to have you on the program. Just your overall sense, as you've been following, of course, this is going to eventually be working worked out in committee between the two sides, but ultimately looking at what you've seen so far presented in both the Senate and the House versions of this tax reform bill, is it all that it's cracked up to be? It's not all that it's cracked up to be, but it's certainly a, a, a large step in that direction. The, the A lot of the rhetoric around this bill is, is, is overblown and trying to make uh, make things out of it that it's not. It is what it is, is a large middle-class tax cut. It's also a pro-growth and pro-American worker uh, tax bill. And that's the by making America a more competitive place to do business, it will allow businesses to expand, to hire more Americans, to eventually wa- raise their wages because of the different additional jobs and competition for workers. So there's there's a lot to like here. And and I'm excited to, to see what comes out of conference. Here's the tough question. 
How much is there in this measure to dislike, particularly for those of us that live in states like California? So far, we're hearing some numbers when you talk about elimination of uh, deductions for everything from uh, local and state taxes to um, caps on mortgage interest deductions and certainly equally um, dealing with or addressing the issue of what we can deduct for um, the property taxes. It sounds like some of this is not going to be all that healthy for Californians. So there's a couple points there. One, the, the the cap on mortgage interest deduction is only going forward. Everyone that currently has has purchased a house is grandfathered in, so there, there's no change there. And and then for the majority uh, of of Californians and and folks in high cra- uh, high tax states across the country. The, the something like 85 or 90 percent of folks will still will take the standard deduction and won't and it'll make more sense for them not to write off their their state and local taxes uh, just because the standard deduction is being doubled for for all families that's going for for, a mar- for married folks from 12,000 to 24,000 and then the question is that that last 10 or 15 percent of folks that that uh, that currently write off their state and local taxes and will continue under this bill, what is left for them? And right now that's still being negotiated, but it looks like there will be a $10,000 cap for, uh, for property tax or income tax, and, and that will continue to be a large benefit for, for Californians. The, the, the really truth of the matter is that states around the country are right now, right now are subsidizing the, the highest uh, marginal income tax rates in the country in California that those top income earners in California get to write off 40% of, of, that, of those, that top marginal rate. And that has to be paid for by everyone else around the country. And that's, that's just on its face, not fair. Well, isn't it also true that California, with the largest population and some of the highest income levels, also pays more than its lion's share into the federal coffers? Doesn't that, that offset any of that uh, difference between the deductibility in, in say, poorer states versus California? So the, the relevant comparison is uh, an, a taxpayer that is earning the same amount of money in California, say, or New York, and in and, and a different state. If the, just because a state has more high-income people, the, 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 the relevant comparison is earning the same amount of money across the board. So the numbers I have off the top of my head, someone that's living in, in New York versus someone that's living in ten, Tennessee, someone that's currently is living in New York, can deduct that's making between fifty and seventy five thousand dollars a year can deduct on average about three thousand dollars off their federal tax return where that, where that exact same person living in Tennessee on average can only deduct about nine hundred dollars off of their their federal tax return so the uh, having two people that have the exact same income being able to deduct vastly different amounts from their federal tax liability is that's that's the, where the sort of underlying unfairness comes from. The one thing that perhaps is going to prove to be painful, and we'll talk about this more after the break, and that is some of these caps that when it comes to things like, for example, uh, property taxes, California has some of the highest in the state in spite of Proposition 13, and of course, or in the nation rather, and Proposition 13 really only benefits people that have been in their property for a longer period of time. And so for ter- first-time home buyers, new home buyers, they in particular might be hardest hit by this measure. We'll talk about that potential fallout from this as we continue our look at the proposal. It is the biggest proposal to 
reform taxes in the country in, my goodness, more than 30 years. Is it all that it's stacked up to be? Our conversation with Adam Michelle, policy analyst for the Heritage Foundation's Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies, continues right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're visiting today with Adam Michelle. Adam is policy analyst for the Heritage Foundation's Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. Earlier today, Adam, the uh, president in a a news conference called this bill, quote, vital to the American people for many reasons. He talks about um, uh, this being good not only for business, but working families of our country. And then he goes on to quote numbers. He says, and I quote, the typical family for earning 75,000 will see an income tax cut of $2,000. So that's $2,000 in their pocket additional to spend on whatever they want to spend, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Here's where I think it becomes complicated in California. Uh, the number you've mentioned it, the president mentioned it, somewhere in that fifty to seventy-five thousand dollar a year range, which of course is not anywhere near the realm of what we are earning here in California, nor what we are spending. Let me use Santa Clara as an example, where the median income in Santa Clara County is ninety-four thousand dollars a year, and the median home price is one million one hundred and sixty-two thousand dollars a year. If we have a cap, for example, on the property taxes of a deduction of only $10,000, that means every median income family with living in a medium-priced home in Santa Clara County that they purchased within the last couple of years is going to see approximately a $7,000 increase to their taxes or increased exposure because the $17,000, almost $18,000 a year or more that they pay in property taxes will now only be deductible up to the first $10,000. That seems to me that the challenge here is that the definition of what is fair and a median income in one part of the country is not fair and the median income in another part of the country, seemingly punishing states like California. So so there's a whole lot of other things going on in this bill, including lowering tax rates across the board, which compensates for a lot of the the other moving pieces that, that you just mentioned. But but, but you're right. This is the problem with having a tax code that has these built-in subsidies for various different things across the board. If any time you try to change one, one lever, it, it's automatically affecting different people differently because cost of living is different. The size of houses, the amount of tax revenue paid is different. And, and all of those things go, go into to our federal taxes, unfortunately. So the part of it, what this bill is trying to do is is get rid of all of those special carve-outs to hopefully bring down the rate for, for everyone across the board so, so that, so that there, there isn't this inequity built into the federal tax code. See, and the problem, I guess, it all comes down to a matter of semantics, and I, and I don't intend this to, to sound like I'm picking on you, so put the disclaimer up front, but you say, <laughs> hopefully. And, and we've heard similar language uh, from the likes of Mitch McConnell, uh, who talked about, you know, this is going to be a tax incre- a decrease for everybody in the country. Then he had to come back and, and correct those statements. Uh, uh, numbers uh, of uh, leaders within the Republican side have promised um, all, all kinds of wonderful things, including um, sugar cane, candy. Candy and, and puppy dogs to come along with this tax 
um, revitalization, and yet the reality is not everyone is going to save money. And I think what Californians are struggling with, at least certainly what I'm hearing from my audience here in the San Francisco Bay Area is, a lot of deductions that we rely upon in order to get by, that's everything from medical expense deductions to if you get a new job, you'll no longer be able to deduct the cost of moving. Um, state and local income tax deduction we mentioned goes away. State and local t- sales tax deduction goes away here in California, highest in the nation. Deduction for work-related employee expenses disappears. A cap, as we mentioned, uh, on property taxes at $10,000. And so then suddenly there's this creeping sense of of inequity that Californians are feeling. And as we're hearing, you know, there's two plus trillion dollars in offshore accounts that corporate America, with reducing the corporate income tax rate to something that is, quite frankly, more reflective of the rest of the planet, seems logical, seems fair. I think where the fairness disappears is... We're going to reduce income tax rates. We're going to allow all that money to come back into the country. And yet corporate America is not losing any of their business deductions the way private Americans in in states like California are. And there's a level at which that just doesn't seem to be fair. I agree with you on that point. The, the, The corporate deduction for state and local taxes should also go away. I wish they removed all of it across the board, including they did not even allowing 10, the 10K for, for individuals, but also removing it for, for, for businesses. That would have allowed them to bring down rates for both individuals and businesses even further. And this is, this is as we started, started this conversation, that I don't think this tax reform is perfect, and by no means do I think it's going to be a tax cut for every single person in the United States. There's, there's a good, there's seven to ten percent of people that probably will see a tax increase, and many of those may be in California. And that's, I wish rates came down further to uh, to compensate for a lot of that. But this, the the business tax reform, bringing down that rate from the current high of 35%, which is the highest in, in the developed world, down to 20%, will, will be a benefit for all Americans. That, that, that allows businesses to invest in more capital, expand their factories, hire more Americans. And, and that's, some, that's something we just see in the data. Every time another country around the world has lowered their corporate taxes, workers' wages have gone up because businesses are forced to compete for for more workers, which means they have to raise their wages. And that's that's for me where the real benefit of this happens. But ha- haven't workers' from. wages overall in this country been stagnant, you know, uh, you know, certainly that's, adjusted for inflation going back to the 1970s? And, and that's that's a big a big part of the problem is I, I, not back to. I don't think it's back to quite the 1970s when you factor in full compensation packages. But over the last uh, 10 plus years, uh, businesses have been actually decreasing the amount of investment they're doing in the United States. Uh, capital per worker, this measurement of, of business investment per worker in the United States has gone negative in a couple of years in the past uh, eight or so years. And that and that is what drives workers' wages to increase is productivity. And what you need for increased productivity is an additional investment in the workforce. And so this and it, it's because we're uncompetitive globally that businesses no longer want to invest in America. So this tax reform is really, really targeted at that part of the economy, that problem with wages stagnating, that problem with businesses not creating enough jobs. This, this 
tax reform bill, I believe, does do an excellent job at reversing a lot of those trends. But does it put any conditions? Is there, what do they say in computing language, if-then statements? In other words, if we do this, then you must do that. And I, and I, I pose that question because, for example, here in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, we saw in 2010 the cessation of the partnership between General Motors and Toyota, the, um, the mark or the brand Pontiac disappeared, so General Motors said, well, we're no longer making that brand. We no longer need to have a presence at the factory in Fremont, California. We're pulling out of the deal. In turn, Toyota said, well, if they're leaving, we really can't sustain this on our own, so guess what? We're closing down the only automotive manufacturing plant in the state of California. A couple of years go by, into town rides Elon Musk. God bless Elon and Tesla. We've got a buzzing factory over here again. They are benefiting from not only tons of investment from people on Wall Street, but tons of tax benefits and tax credits to bring them here and keep them here. And yet, here's what's happened. The average worker's wages in 2010 under Toyota was about $32 an hour. Today, the average worker's wages are about $20 an hour, in spite of the fact that Toyota and General Motors receive nowhere near the tax goodies and benefits that Tesla is receiving. And so the, the question, I guess, becomes, we're going to reduce taxes for corporations. We all talk about how this is going to bring a great influx of cash back home to the U.S. shores. There's going to be greater investment. We're going to see Apple and Google and all of these major corporations that are holding millions, billions of dollars overseas repatriate that money, and that money is going to get back into the system. It's going to create more jobs. But there there doesn't seem to be, from what I've read so far, any if thens to this tax bill that would say, if you bring the money back, then you must do this. There doesn't seem to be anything that's going to compel them to actually follow through on everybody on everything everybody says they're going to do. So I, I would posit that the then statements aren't actually affected. As you pointed out, the, 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 the special breaks that were given to Tesla saying, if you come to California, you get this special tax benefit. That's not the way to create robust economic growth and jobs. The, the way to do it is to treat everyone the same and, increase, and, and create an incentive for businesses regardless of what they're doing and regardless of, of which specific plant and which specific state they're going to open. If, if we say, if, if you come and invest in the United States, you get a competitive rate that's similar to all the other countries around the world. That's how you get true, broad-based investment in, in the economy. It, it's, this, it's these specialized deals that provide relief to just certain activities that are privileged, that are decided on by the state or federal government that, that, re, that don't produce the type of benefits that we're talking about. It's, these, it's, the, it's the opening the floodgates for, for all investment that, that this bill does, and that's, and that's why I think it's different than, than what you were just describing. Adam Michelle is with us, policy analyst for the Heritage Foundation's Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. Information, of course, on the web at heritage.org. We'll take a brief time out, come back to some closing comments from Adam Michelle as this edition of Lifeline continues. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back for some closing comments from Madam Michelle, policy analyst for the Heritage Foundation's Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. One of the questions, Adam, that, that's kind of lingering in the background is as corporations are getting excited about the possibility of tax reductions and, and some Americans, although maybe not all Californians, uh, one of the big underlying questions remains What's this going to do in terms of the overall impact to federal deficits? We're at $20 trillion, and we're getting ready to raise that ceiling yet again. Uh, There had been some assertions made that in the the effort here to reduce federal revenue, potentially by more than $1.4 trillion, would not increase federal deficits, an assertion that we know ultimately has been contradicted by the Congressional Budget Office. What do you think in terms of what is the potential economic impact to the deficit with this proposal? Whenever we talk about the taxes and the debt, we have to start with the understanding that we didn't get $20 trillion in debt because we haven't taxed people enough. This is, this is a spending problem on its face. We, we, the more money, way more money floods out of the federal government than we take in. And under current law, we're projected to, to bring in more revenue as a percent of GDP uh, out over the next 10 years, and we're still not any, none of that is used to pay down the debt. Instead, we continue to, to spend more than we should. So, so putting that aside, the, this tax reform will, will certainly not pay for itself. But what it will do is grow the economy up to about th- uh, 3% larger than it otherwise would be. And once it gets to that 3% larger, it will cover all of the costs or, mo- or almost all of the costs of the tax reform. So really what we're talking about is a one-time reduction in federal revenue of about 1%. And and so in the grand scheme of a $43 trillion tax revenue intake over 10 years, a 1% reduction in that is is a small price to pay for a significantly larger economy, uh, many, many more jobs, uh, raises for Americans on average, for an average family around uh, $4,000. When you start adding up all the good things that come from tax reform, not to mention the tax cuts for, for most Americans, this is, uh, I'm, I'm really not concerned about the overall deficit impact. Finally, when the president says that this could potentially impact GDP to, quote, four, five, even six percent as possible, is that really possible? Uh, I think five percent is probably on the upper end of, of reasonable. Um, our estimates put it around three percent a larger economy uh, after everything goes into effect. But that is still a, a huge benefit to the average American. As I mentioned before, that, that 3% larger translates into an average raise for, for a, an American family of about $4,000 a year. And, and, that's, and that's, re, that's real money. It may not be instantaneous, but, but that, that's, those are real economic effects that are uh, largely agreed upon in academic literature and across the board. Adam, we appreciate your time and uh, your insights on this topic. There is Adam Michelle, policy analyst for the Heritage Foundation's Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. And again, his specialty is tax policy and the federal budget. More information available on the web at heritage.org. A couple of thoughts, if I might. Um, 
So he's indicating that the president's estimate GDP could go up to 5-6%, maybe a little bit enthusiastic, but they see 3% as certainly doable. Um, the reality or the, the irony is that historically and up to the economic downturn of 2007-2008, we had a GDP that hovered around 2.5-3%. So you're talking about returning to historic norms, not necessarily making this giant leap forward. Uh, the other bit, I, I think, of, of a wake-up call here um, is this, that the fact of the matter is, particularly in states like California, New York, Connecticut, those of us that live in, yes, high-income states, but also high-taxation states, we stand to see higher tax bills because of the elimination or curtailment of many of these deductions. And quite frankly, that's just the facts. And that is not coming from a partisan standpoint. That is from the Joint Committee on Taxation, which is essentially the nonpartisan official taxation goalkeeper for Congress. Um, moreover, because many of these tax breaks expire in just 10 years, um, in that period of time, 20 million households with income below $200,000 will see a tax increase by then. I, I think we should also... Uh, put a couple of things in, in perspective here because, again, a lot of this is getting glossed over. Under the current proposal, your deduction for tax preparation expenses goes away. Your deduction for medical expenses disappears. If you relocate for a job, your deduction for moving expenses disappears. Casualty loss deduction with the exception of for hurricanes, disappears. So if you lost your home in the recent fires, any casualty losses there, that's not deductible. State and local income tax deduction disappears. State and local sales tax deduction disappears. For many of us in the Bay Area, that's 10%. Deduction for interest on home equity loans, so you thought you were clever by moving that money over and uh, perhaps refinancing some of your revolving charge cards, things of that sort, unsecured debt into a home equity loan, because you could take advantage of the deductibility. That goes bye-bye. Also, deduction for work-related employee expenses. So if you have to buy shoes or uniforms for work, things of this sort, that deductibility disappears. And while property taxes, yes, will remain deductible, only up to $10,000. I did some math, and if you own a median-priced home in Santa Clara County, that price, I'm going to redo my math here, you're paying north of $20,000 a year in property taxes. That's 1.5% per annum, plus all the little bond measures and add-on for this school district thing and that thing. So you're probably talking $22,000 a year. Less than half of that is going to be deductible. Now, your mortgage interest will remain deductible, but only for mortgages of $500,000 or less. Right now, it's a million. And, well, yes, you're going to see a doubling, almost, of the, uh, the baseline deduction. Uh, the personal exemption will go away. Uh, that will impact you by $4,000 of additional exposure. 
And at the end of the day, losing these personal exemptions means that we would wind up paying $1.56 trillion more in taxes over the next 10 years. By the way, this also hits hard the education arena. Right now, you can deduct up to $2,500 of interest on loans for qualified higher education expenses under the new bill. That disappears. If your employer provides you education assistance, uh, that education assistance up to $5,200 per year that's currently excluded from income, that goes away. And interest on U.S. savings bonds excluded from income if used to pay qualified higher education expenses, that also disappears. The three together means a collective increase in federal taxes paid of $47.5 billion. Dick Samuels, the vice president at Moody's Investors Service, said the Senate bill will, quote, had a negative overall for state and local government finances, and the overall negative effect will be felt most sharply in high-tax states such as California, New York, New Jersey, etc. The top 1% of Californians will receive an average 14000 annual tax cut, while the bottom 60% on average will pay more taxes to the federal government. <laughs> and, of course, there's been a little bit of... Uh, strapping to the capizios on, even by those who have pledged, oh no, your taxes are not going to go up. Uh, to wit, and I'm quoting here, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said on MSNBC, nobody in the middle class is going to get a tax increase, close quote. House Speaker Paul Ryan called it a tax cut for everybody, that in an interview with Rush Limbaugh, and said that every single person would see a reduction in tax rates. And Vice President Pence championed the proposal as an across-the-board tax cut. Yeah. Well, in fact, millions of people stand to see higher tax bills because of the elimination or curtailment of these deductions that I've just discussed. And most of us are going to see tax increases even more so in 10 years to help pay for all of this. By the way, there were three California Republicans that voted against this proposal. Tom McClintock, Dana Rohrbacher... And Daryl Issa, all three said they opposed the bill because it increases the tax burden on Californians, and it certainly does. And it seems as if some people are content by saying, well, other states, other people, you know, they've been paying a lot, so now it's time for California to pay its quote-unquote fair share, although certainly overwhelmingly we send more tax dollars to Washington, D.C. than many other states combined. Meanwhile, though, multinational corporations will see major benefits from the tax bill, aside from slicing the corporate tax rate from the current 35% to 20%. Companies will have to pay little or no taxes on profits earned overseas. And by the way, all the deductions that they enjoy, none of that's going to change whatsoever. And I tell you where they're not worried about this. New Census Bureau report out. Five richest counties in the country are all suburbs of Washington, D.C. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
If I describe someone to you as an individual who has had a life of failures, some that just were handed to her, others that kind of came on their own, that led to failed relationships, failed marriages, failed businesses, failed spiritual life, even failed reputation, would that sound like that's somebody that you necessarily want to hear from? Well, from the standpoint of learning how to not make mistakes, probably absolutely. And also from the notion that we serve a God who is not only a forgiving God, but a faithful God. A new book out by my guest tonight, someone whose name I think you will readily recognize. The book is called Full Circle, Coming Home to the Faithfulness of God. Its author, Athena Dean Holtz. And Athena, great to have you on the show. Thanks, Craig. Great to be with you today. Wow, you know, uh, there are listeners that may be familiar with your work, uh, certainly many years as the one of the co-founders and owner of Wine Press Publishing. Um, you have been involved in a lot in the, the Christian world. And some people might say at this juncture in life, Athena G., you have been through the ringer, <laughs> and then some. And yeah. some might say, you know, Athena, with all that you have been through and the publicity that you've already received, not all of it necessarily, uh, all of that welcoming down through the years, uh, why seek more or, or why go public with your side of the story? Well, I think because God has worked so much redemption out of so much destruction that, you know, I feel like there's a lot of people out there who've gone through absolute devastation like I did, maybe not to the extreme that I did, but and have kind of been disappointed in God or felt like maybe God abandoned them or betrayed them. So, gosh, if my story of hope can encourage someone to not give up on God, to, to actually see his, and, and actually cause them to look back and see the times God was faithful, even when it seemed like, you know, chaos. Uh, that's, we need to know that our God is faithful. How would you describe this journey? It, it, certainly it's marked by many highlights in what I would characterize is your quest to find and meet God. Along the way, you got involved with a couple of cults. Well, maybe three, I guess we could include in there if we uh, add to the list the number of years that you were involved in the quote-unquote Church of Scientology. I'm putting my air quotes up here. The listeners can't mm-hmm. see. Um, so a lot, of your, a lot of your life on that spiritual journey, so to speak, some of it encouraged early on by your own grandmother, whom I understand was a, a unity pastor. Exactly. So I had no foundation at all uh, of a Christian nature. It was all very New Age. And, you know, I, I could feel God wooing me as a young girl, but with no one to point me in the right direction, uh, the counterfeits were uh, everywhere. And I was uh, easily drawn into them looking for purpose. I'm, I'm the kind of person... I, I want to see justice. I want, uh, I want to be involved in a cause that's going to make a difference. And so, of course, the enemy is going to use that to try and lead me off to, to something that is, is a false cause. Is there a way in which there's almost a degree to which 
um, a person of your talents, your character is almost uh, the cults are almost drawn to. And I ask that question, Athena, because you're you're driven, you're articulate, you're hardworking. You have a career. You've been a successful business leader, a business person. And I wonder if that profile, so to speak, is something that, as we talk often about people being drawn to the cults, but are the cults drawn to that kind of profile as well? Well, you know, if you think about it, Scientology, they target celebrities and opinion leaders because they know if they can get them, they'll get all the people that follow them who will not even question whether it's a good thing or not, they'll go, wow, that person's doing it. It must be good. So how, absolutely, that's a great question. How did you first get drawn into, in this spiritual journey of yours, we mentioned about your exposure to the Unity Church as a young girl visiting your grandmother down in Santa Monica, I think it was. But but eventually you got involved in Scientology, and, and I would suggest not at a very casual level in that you mentioned about celebrities. You worked for quite a while at the Celebrity Center in Los Angeles, and uh, you eventually married a man who was part of the Sea Org. Exactly. And Again, it seemed like a cause. It was there was a lot of important people that was that was made a, a big deal to me to be around people of influence, and that started at a young age. So uh, I just played right into that. And boy, working at the Celebrity Center, what I mean, I was working for Helen Reddy and other celebrities before I ever got sucked into Scientology. So it was kind of an interesting uh, shift that. You know, I, I, I was vulnerable because I, I didn't know any better. Was it for you always a quest, or were there times of of satisfaction? And I ask that question because to, to listeners who are maybe not familiar with some of the, the um, science fiction principles, and I use that term intentionally, the science fiction principles of Scientology, you're, you're kind of working your way through um, uh, past experiences to going to the point of becoming clear, and anybody can Google this and you'll find out what we're talking about, but it seems as if there's always the next level to get to. There's always one more thing that you're working on in an effort to try to, to achieve that sense of, of satisfaction in Christianity, we might call it peace and joy. Was there ever a time within that experience for you, Athena, that you felt like, wow, I've really made it? Or was it constantly a, a effort to try and achieve the next thing in an effort to try and, and achieve a sense of satisfaction or fulfillment? Exactly. It was always, it was never enough. It was never, uh, you never quite got there. And I think they set it up that way so they could just milk people for more money. I mean, really, th- that's the truth of it. So, yes, there was never any uh, coming to a place of going, wow, this is, what I, this is what I was looking for, and I found it. Because it really didn't exist anyway. It was just L. Ron Hubbard's, you know, thing he made up in his head to dupe people into, you know, making them rich. You left Scientology, came back, left it again. In fact, I think it was about uh, three cycles, wasn't there, all told? Uh-huh, yep. And, uh, and the final one was when we actually uh, found a book that was in the house we moved into that was written by Aleister Crowley, bad dude, the guy who brought Satanism from Britain into the United States. I had no idea who he was. 
But I just, ha- I mean, this had to be God. I just opened this book and went, what is this? And there was a whole page of content that I recognized from one of Hubbard's books where he claimed that that was his content, which meant, oh, L. Ron Hubbard plagiarized this guy. And I didn't even realize how bad that really was. I just realized, wow, we've been duped. And at the point of that revelation, I mean, you, you've spent a number of years now within Scientology at some pretty high levels. During that time, did you, just as in the sidebar here, did you ever have an encounter with, did you ever have an opportunity to meet either Hubbard or Miss Cabbage? No. Uh, Hubbard was out in the desert, uh, so I never met him. And Miss Cabbage was kind of new. He, he wasn't, all, he wasn't uh, in leadership at that time. This was the uh, late 70s. And uh, he wasn't really around at that point. But he was toward the end, towards the time we were getting ready to realize, uh, you know, what we'd gotten sucked into. He was coming on the scene, and and it was obvious that there was some leadership, some toxic leadership going on. Late 1970s, that was a turbulent time in um, Scientology vis-a-vis the infiltration of the FBI and IRS. And I think uh, Hubbard's wife even went to jail for a time over all of that. Yep, and, and there wasn't the inter- I mean, they had people so intimidated into not speaking out against them. But now with the Internet, I mean, it, you know, it's a whole different story now. They can't, they, they can't continue to control people like they used to back then. Yeah, the irony is that there was a gentleman um, many, many years ago. Um, I want to say his last name was Armstrong. He, he had been hired by Scientology to be the official biographer of L. Ron Hubbard, and of course, as began his his research into uh, the life of Hubbard, discovered just how many inaccuracies and and holes there were. Eventually, left the church, and I recall, my goodness, this is more than twenty twenty five years ago. Um, their involvement in intimidating him to not do radio interviews because they didn't want all of this information going public. But I guess today, that's that is the feather pillow torn open in the middle of the fan in the living room, <laughs> you're never going to yep. stuff all of those feathers back in again, uh, thanks to the internet. Exactly. And what's interesting is that all cults, they all do the same thing. They all try and bully those who are willing to speak out and speak the truth. They all do the same thing. They threaten legal. They create fake websites, news websites to smear the person's reputation. I mean, that's what the other cult did to me in the Christian world. So it's amazing to see the similarities and the parallels. Yeah, it's interesting if you go online and you Google for any of the Scientology videos, there's a couple of really crazy ones with, well, there's a lot of crazy ones, but what with Tom Cruise in specific. And now Scientology is taken to purchasing ads that run ahead of the YouTube content. It's, it's amazing. If you've just joined us, Athena Dean Holtz is with us today. She is coming full circle. That, by the way, is the title of her new book, Full Circle, Coming Home to the Faithfulness of God. We'll talk more about her life's journey and what brought her full circle as our conversation continues right after a quick look at traffic. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.